This is Miss Melissa, the Bathtub Mermaid, and you're listening to Tales from the Tub. Well, it's been a while, but I'm finally back. Today, I'm pulling three stories out of the swirling bathtub waters of my brain. The first is called Brass Rings, and it's read by Nuktas from the Nutty Bites podcast. The second is Mark, the encaffeinated one, reading A Suit to Die For. And finally, there's me, with a new installment of the Basil and Zoe saga. This one's called Joy in All Things. This is Brass Rings, read by Nuktas. It's not what you think. The Art Deco building that houses the old carousel still stands, but the painted ponies on their pneumatic poles are gone. History would tell you that the carousel was dismantled because it was old, because Asbury Park was sinking into decrepitude, because maintaining the wooden horses was too expensive. History would be wrong. There's a little-known secret about that vintage carousel. It was actually a portal, or a collection of portals. The kids knew. Oh, not all of them. But the geeky kids knew. The bookworms, the dreamers, and the sci-fi enthusiasts knew. If a kid caught the brass ring and made a wish, the ride would speed up and then the pony would leap from the platform. There wasn't any specific location the ponies went to. It was assumed the destination was tailored to each kid. But they'd be back less than a moment after they'd left, though they always returned talking of adventures that lasted for days. By the time the news of the carousel's closure became public, most of the kids who knew its secret had grown too old to go on adventures. But they had a plan. They identified kids in their communities who needed to escape. Homeless kids, abused kids, kids unlikely to be missed. 24 children, 12 painted ponies. They were put two to a horse and told what to do, how to wish. The carousel began to spin. The calliope music blared out, filled the empty building, echoing over the boardwalk and out to sea. One by one, the ponies pranced into oblivion, carrying their charges to permanent safety. The media reported on the missing carousel horses, but not the missing children. The rest of the ride was torn apart. No one ever spoke of the magic carousel again, but the kids who'd grown up around it remembered. And sometimes they still dreamed of reaching up catching the brass ring, and going on an infinite ride. This is Mark, the encaffeinated one, reading A Suit to Die For. Changes in fashion and culture affect everyone. Business attire has grown ever more casual. Flight attendants don't have to be stick-thin and perpetually 23 anymore. It made sense, then for the Grim Reaper to rethink his look. "'Don't get me wrong,' he said to his tailor, a lovely man named Moshe, destined to die of heart failure at the age of fifty-seven. "'Black never goes out of style, but if one more child looks at me 
and wants to know if I'm the character from Scream, I may go mad. Those cloaks always seemed heavy for summer wear, Moshe agreed. And hard to keep clean, with the trailing hems and all. You're supposed to be grim, not grimy. Let's try something simpler. Minimalism is very trendy right now. The tailor cut and stitched, measured more than twice, cut some more, and finally held up the finished uniform. Try this on, G.R. The reaper went into the dressing room and changed into the new creation. Observing himself in the mirror, he smiled. It wasn't a pleasant expression. The mirror cracked in response. Well, called Moshe the tailor, are you going to let me see? The grim reaper stalked out to the main room. He always stalked. It was his way. Stalking and looming were two of his signature moves. You don't think the bear midriff is a mistake? No, not at all. Do you like it? I do, the reaper said. The tattered shirt feels so breezy, and the trousers fit perfectly, and I can move in them. I don't know what to do about my scythe, though. It doesn't really enhance the look. The tailor went silent for a moment, studying him. Then he moved towards the accessory wall of his shop. I have just the thing, he said. The Grim Reaper heard different objects being lifted, examined, and tossed aside. Ah! Moshe returned to the fitting area and thrust something into the Reaper's hand. This is perfect. A briefcase. The Reaper pronounced the word slowly, breaking it into its component parts. A multidimensional briefcase. It's got a pocket for your scythe and another zippered section for storing souls. It's perfect. The reaper folded his scythe into the briefcase. You have my eternal gratitude. Eternal? Marcia asked. The grim reaper opened the briefcase once more. I'm afraid so. Come with me, Moshe. Everything will be all right. Moshe never felt his body hit the floor, but the reaper and the rest of those dwelling in the afterlife had perfectly tailored clothing for the rest of time. Joy in All Things, a Basil and Zoe story. Starhaven Transit Station, 0200 hours local time. Two in the morning isn't typically a busy period on a starbase, especially if that starbase is little more than an interstellar transit station in a sector populated mostly by recently admitted members of the Coalition of Aligned Worlds. Members whose planets are still dealing with the kind of wars and strife that the Founding Worlds resolved centuries before. My wrist comb vibrates against my pulse point and I flip up the protective cover. As expected, it's my fiancé, Basil, calling from the CSS Cousteau, his billet, and the closest thing to a permanent home either of us has at the moment. Zoe, I am gratified to be speaking with you in real time, he opens. Time-delayed messages are inefficient and lack feeling. His image is 2D, flat on the tiny display panel. No disagreement here, I respond. 
But you were the one who said I should take this gig. Using theater skills to help flood-displaced children process their trauma would be a useful way to spend your semester break, you said. I could be spending the next five weeks doing Shakespeare in the Park on Hunter's Moon, where there are cafes and restaurants and cushy hotels. You could, he agrees. But you enjoy helping others. And, as I believe you pointed out, the time you spend on repostas will look good on a resume. There is that, I agree, my tone slightly rueful. But at least on Hunter's Moon you can visit. I miss you also, Basil says, comprehending the words that were unsaid as well as those that were, and cutting off any further whining from me in the process. However, assuming that there are no unforeseen events while you are away, your return shuttle will rendezvous with the Cousteau in 41 days, 7 hours, and 17 minutes. He leaves off seconds and fractions thereof, but I refrain from commenting on that. See you soon, I say with no little bit of sarcasm in my tone. But the last word becomes a yawn. I have three more hours to kill. Hmm. I'm going to find the replimat and a rest pod. I'll send a message as soon as I'm checked in at the hostel. Very good, he says. I love you, Zoe. Love you too, I answer, flashing him a tired smile. Harris out. I cut the channel and snap the copper-colored cover back down. Two and a half hours later, I've napped, washed up, and obtained a cafe mocha from a kiosk that claims to proudly serve Red Sands coffee. It's not awful, but it's not as good as the real thing. Better than the replicator, though. My luggage has been checked through, so I only have my day pack and the coffee to deal with as I make my way to the boarding lounge. 4.30 in the morning is busier than 2 o'clock was, and most of the rows of chairs are at least partly occupied. I choose a seat in the front row, next to a conservatively dressed woman who appears to be human, and about the same age as my mother. She bids me good morning and asks if I'm waiting for the shuttle to New Zatari, the capital city. Then she says, You look familiar. Should I recognize you? I get that a lot, partly because I'm the daughter of a celebrity composer who's a bit of a playboy and partly because I'm engaged to the Star Navy's only officer who is also a sentient AI, and partly because even though this gig is an unpaid externship I'm doing during the winter intercession of my senior year of university, I've had several paid jobs, including a tour with the Idlewild Theater of the Stars. Translation. For someone who's not quite 22 years old, I've been in the press a lot. Still, I hedge. Not necessarily. You must be an aid worker, then, coming to help with the survivors from the fires. The smaller continent on Rapostis recently suffered a debilitating drought, followed by terrible wildfires and complicated by floods. It was all comparable to what happened in California on Earth in the first half of the 21st century, but on a much wider scale. Sort of, I say. I'm here with Beyond Theater. We're going to be working with the kids from Sephira, using theater skills to help them process. Ah, so you're on a mission. That's worthy. I, too, am a missionary of sorts. I open my mouth to tell her that I'm not a missionary, just an actor and a student, but she goes on. I travel to planets in strife and bring them word of the one. I can't help shivering. The last time I encountered someone following the one, it was Basil's twin leading a coalition of artificial intelligences that wanted nothing more than to eradicate all organic life from the cosmos. Never mind that organic life created them and kept the power on. But this woman isn't referring to Castor. Instead, she was referring to the focus of a relatively recent religious movement. The old religions, 
Judaism, Islam, Christianity, through Kuastian practice from the planet Chilea, and many, many more, all still exist, but religious practice has become largely personal. People no longer proselytize, and I don't remember ever encountering an itinerant evangelist before. I didn't think people still did that, I tell her. I don't know about people, she says. I only know about myself. Bringing news of the ones, loving kindness to the unenlightened is a personal quest. I used all my personal savings, moving from planet to planet, and when that ran out, I started working odd jobs in exchange for food and transit. That seems like a lot. It is. But my cause is true. If more people truly embodied the one's teachings, the universe would be a better place. I notice, now, that she has a satchel full of data flimsies, presumably holding religious tracts. She is staring at me, her face open, expectant. The universe could use more kindness, I say. But what I'm thinking is that on one level I agree with her. More loving kindness is never a bad thing, as long as it comes with equal measures of acceptance and understanding. I'm also thinking that I don't want to tell her I agree with her, because she'll assume that I'm also a follower of the one, and conventional human religious practices have proven challenging to mesh into my life with Basil. Not that I'm particularly devout or anything, but I grew up in a family that actually went to church on occasion, and part of me misses the community and the rituals involved. But this inner dialogue is actually an improvement over former versions of myself, because two or three years before, what I would have been thinking, and possibly saying aloud, is that this woman is a freaking nutcase with no life. To her credit, she doesn't offer me any of her data flimsies. Instead, she says that she's also going to Sephira to offer spiritual succor to those who need it. So many parentless children there now, she says, real grief in her voice and so many childless parents. An announcement for our shuttle, it's delayed 47 minutes, makes her last few words unintelligible. Curious, and with more time to fill, I ask her, what motivated you to do this? My husband, she shares, her voice soft, and my son. They were both in the Navy and served during the Oligite invasion. Both their ships were lost. I'd been living with my mother on the Cousteau during that war, but had been with my father on Centaurus celebrating the winter holidays and his wedding to my stepfather at the time of the actual invasion. I'd returned home to find my mother injured, and it had been Basil's support then to help me through it, but I don't tell her all that. I just say, I'm so sorry. The NFS sent a counselor and a priest, and after spending time with both of them, I reconnected with the teachings of the One, she explains. My family was fairly religious when I was young, but I'd lost my way, as so many do. I'm distracted by the sight of a family with three children and a luggage pile you could build a fortress from, attempting to navigate through the increasingly crowded lounge. The adults in the group are both wearing the uniform of the Coalition Medical Service. They were probably reassigned to Repostus because of the extreme need for doctors. I think about the two bags that are being routed to the shuttle for me a privilege accorded to me because of my Navy fiancé, one of which is stuffed full of packaged chocolates and hard candies from Earth and Centaurus. My cheeks flush with embarrassment and guilt. Sure, the snacks were meant to share, but I could easily manage with far less than I brought. My new friend follows my gaze. Packing light is a skill taught by necessity. They should be grateful they have so much to carry. I'd never thought of it that way. I learned it the hard way. We chat for a few more minutes, and then the shuttle finally opens for boarding. Thank you for the conversation, 
she tells me. You will be doing a good thing, a worthy thing. It will be hard at times, but there will be moments of joy. Remember that the one teaches it's right to embrace joy wherever we encounter it. And I can tell that she really means the words she's spoken. Then she glances down at my left hand where my engagement ring gleams against my vacation tan skin. Your partner must be proud of you. Lean on that when you miss him. I realize that I hadn't mentioned Basil or having a partner, and I suddenly wonder if I should be checking to see if she filched my identity while we were talking. Shaking my head, I stand up, sling my pack over one shoulder, and step toward the open hatchway that leads to the shuttle. It strikes me that we'd never exchange names, and I turn back to ask for hers and offer mine, maybe see if our seats are close together, but the chair she had occupied is empty, and I don't see her walking away. Shrugging, I let the gate attendant scan my chit and I take my seat on the shuttle, but I can't shake the woman from my mind, and when they close the hatch for launch, I ask the onboard attendant if anyone is missing. Nope, everyone's checked in, she says. Basil often reminds me that the universe is full of strange things and that not all of them are massive events. I resolve to think of the evangelist as one of them. I further resolve to take her advice during these five weeks of separation from my partner. Find joy in all things. The Bathtub Mermaid Tales from the Tub is written and produced by Melissa A. Bartell under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike Non-Commercial International 4.0 License. The Bathtub Mermaid is made possible by the generous donations from my patrons, Fran Hutchinson, Mark the Encaffeinated One, Selena Taylor, Charlotte and Ken Kennedy, Jason Banks of Nerds with Voices, Susan Fogel, Agnuchas of the Nutty Bites podcast. If you'd like to join them in supporting my work and getting more stories, essays, and mermaid minutes from me, please visit patreon.com slash bathtubmermaid. For complete show notes and my contact information, please visit www.bathtubmermaid.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, never let your bath water get too cold.